0: I'm Jeff Stewart, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist and the host of this podcast, From Crisis to Connection. This is a podcast about relationships. The relationships with others, of course, but also the relationship with ourselves and the relationship with our higher power. I believe we experience our deepest joys when we're in harmony with these relationships. But when we lose that connection to ourselves and others through our own unhealthy behaviors like addictions infidelity, secrecy, abuse, and so on, or we lose it by being betrayed by someone else's choices, it throws us into crisis. Getting out of crisis and living in connection isn't always straightforward or easy, but it is possible. And that's why every week I bring you incredible guests who share their life experiences and expertise to help you move from crisis to connection. Welcome, I'm so glad you're here. Today we're gonna talk about how to reclaim your sexuality in the wake of betrayal. This is a very delicate and important topic because so many people, when they are sexually betrayed by their partner, they often feel like their own sexuality is totally damaged or broken. It's not uncommon for them to be confused about how they want to relate to their own body, how they want to handle sex with their partner, how they feel about sex in general. It just turns everything around and makes it so difficult to know how to navigate sexuality and healthy intimacy going forward. And so in this episode, I interviewed Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife, who is a expert on human sexuality, couple sexuality, and helping people reclaim their own individual sexuality. And I thought she was the perfect guest to talk about this very difficult topic. Dr. Fife has created many online courses. She's a relationship and sexuality educator and is a licensed clinical professional counselor in Illinois and has a PhD in counseling psychology from Boston College. And she does a lot of writing and teaching about these topics. And it's just a real thrill to have her on this podcast to talk about these things. We are going to cover what to do about sexuality in the wake of betrayal. So this episode It can be perfect for people in all stages of the recovery process, whether you're just barely discovering a betrayal and you're trying to figure out what to do with your own sexuality and whether you should even be having sex with this person or if you shouldn't be, all the way to a couple who are now trying to figure out how to reintegrate healthy sexuality months or even years down the road. And oftentimes there are roadblocks and a lot of surprises and unanticipated stressors that come in the wake of sexual betrayal. And so I'm confident that in this interview with Dr. Finlayson Fife that we're going to be able to cover different aspects of your journey and hopefully be able to answer some of the specific questions that you have. Here's my interview now with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Well, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to be with you today, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: I'm curious first of all, just when you talk about individual sexuality and just a person being a sexual being, what does that mean to you? I've I've been curious how you would respond to that. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do really think of us as human beings as inherently sexual. You know, just from, even in utero, you know, babies yeah. in development are capable of sexual pleasure. And so it's just a fundamental part of being human. How we're in relationship to our sexuality has a lot to do with how we are related to as people, as children how we think about ourselves, how we think about our strength, how we think about our our right to pleasure in our lives, for example. And so, people can have very conflicted relationships with sexuality. I would even say most people on the planet do. Yeah, It's also a very vulnerable part of being human. It's really kind of at our core. And I may be wrong about this, but perhaps even more so for women, because I think women are more biologically vulnerable through sexuality. And so I think that when someone is harmed in the sexual realm, it's a very deep kind of harm. So I think sometimes when I talk about we are implicitly sexual beings, for some people, they, I think, don't necessarily want that to be true, because it's something they're trying to get away from, Mm. to limit the kind of harm or fear that they feel around it.
0: Yeah, that's exactly my experience with it. Is that they don't want to talk about it and essentially throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, and not embrace right. anything sexual, even in themselves. Certainly, Absolutely. and I, we know that like a lot of women are culturally conditioned. And I don't, I don't know the the full truth about why this is the case, but you know, to be feel responsible for the sexual relationship, and right. so, so and obviously rejecting that when there's been a sexual betrayal, but then again, rejecting themselves as well. You see that happen a lot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it depends a lot on how a couple or an individual has made sense of their sexuality. But I think a lot of women do feel a sense that it's part of the marital sexual debt, in a sense, to be the sexual partner, to be the one responsible for their spouse's sexual well-being. So not all women, obviously, but some women really enter into that agreement with that idea. The betrayal then feels especially damaging because there's this feeling that I wasn't enough. But also, it's very difficult because it's such vulnerable territory, even in the best of circumstances. When there's betrayal and the exposure of a willingness to be dishonest in this realm, the desire to shut down this part of oneself altogether is very high and has a meaningful sense to it. Right. So, but it's but often for people who've already had an arm's length relationship to their sexuality, it's very punctuated. It kind of reinforces all the most damaging meanings. And so it actually kind of exacerbates a problematic relationship to sexuality in their response to the betrayal.
0: Mm. Yeah, which is diagnostic in a sense. I mean, for for someone to recognize that they're, I mean, would you say that they're, that the strength of their reaction to the betrayal and, and this you know, the sexual reaction to the betrayal perhaps uncovers their own relationship to their own sexuality? Or have you seen something? It could.
1: Different? It certainly could. And it depends a lot, of course, on what the betrayal exactly is. You that's know?
0: totally fair. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. totally fair. Can you go back on something you said? I've never heard I've never even heard that phrase before, but it it rang so true to me. Mm-hmm. The idea that that women come in with a belief around sex being some kind of a marital debt yeah can you say more about that that's such an interesting concept to me
1: there's all i do want to sort of qualify i think there's a men's version of caretaking of women through sexuality that can be problematic for men which we can talk about at some point but i think a lot of women especially the group of women that i work with coming from religious cultures that are more male centric around sexuality there's this idea, you know, often the women I work with were told by their mothers on their, on their wedding day, you know, never say no, otherwise he'll go to porn, otherwise he'll be unfaithful, kind of he's supplying you economically and he's putting the roof over your head and this is your job, is you supply him with sexuality. And so there's this kind of implicit contract around sexuality as a service, as opposed to an act of intimacy.
0: Mm, like it's transactional. Yes, yeah, exactly. well, and that that really does punctuate then, I think, like you said the the betrayal or you know the sexual betrayal in the sense of my offering, my debt, my you know my part of the deal clearly wasn't enough, right. That's where that exactly. gets so wounded,
1: absolutely, and also, yeah, that I sort of was expecting you. To be the one who offers me safety, offers me a path in life. So there's an inherent dependency in that model. And when that gets exposed by the betrayal, that you aren't the good guy, you aren't the source of safety, you aren't the source of protection, you, in fact, could harm me and harm me in this very intimate way, it's extremely disorganizing Mm -hmm. because you want to trust that person, at least a lot of the people that I've worked with around this, they're very upset in part because they no longer have the source of safety in a in a complex world that they had imagined before that. And so it disrupts... They want very much to trust because they want that sense of security again. And I don't blame them for that. I mean, that certainly makes sense. But the exposure is an opportunity to grow into a deeper relationship to what is true, a deeper relationship to oneself and possibly a better marriage. But often the betrayal itself is so disorganizing that it either breaks the marriage or it it resolidifies in a kind of higher contempt and higher distanced form.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. and And that can be a hard thing. You know, this is the work that you and I both do. I mean, this this is a hard thing for couples to navigate their way out of because it involves, like we're talking about in today's episode here, your own individual sexuality and reclaiming that first or as part of this bigger reclamation with the relationship. And That's right. And I mean, that's a lot to ask. It's (laughs) that's a lot of work.
1: It is. And you know, the thing about crises in life is that they are in some ways, both the thing that can push us down when we were already maybe struggling, but oftentimes they are also the thing that allows you to really change something, address something, shift something. And these are very challenging moments. So I feel empathy for people who are going through that kind of crisis because you think it really could break you. But oftentimes when people realize, look, my spouse and I have been buying into a system around sexuality around who we each are as individuals, about how we are as a couple that is broken. It's not working for us anymore. We want something better. And so that implosion becomes an opportunity to recreate a stronger relationship to one's sense of self. I've been depending on him. I've been asking him to give me a life. I was working with a couple last night where she's saying, you know, I just kind of hooked my cart to your horse. And he was trying to be the best horse out there in the sense of superhuman. Okay. And then when she kind of saw this was driving resentment on both sides, that it was breaking apart, you know, she's trying to figure out how do I kind of stand in my own strength and not throw it away? And how do I, he was thinking, how do I hold on to my sense of self without needing to be needed all the time? Without needing to be the strong one, without needing to be the supposed, you know, voice of clarity in any, you know, given moment. And so they're growing into a, or striving to grow into a richer relationship with their own humanity and their own strength without an implicit dependency. That as they're doing that makes them more trustworthy people, but also people who can love out of desire as opposed to need for the other person's role. To validate who they are. And so yeah. it's hard work, but it's very meaningful work. And it's really the work of human development.
0: Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. And it, and it really, to me, it goes beyond maybe even what the natural reflexes of healthy attachment are, right? Which yes. is the drive to bond and feel secure with another person. But then it seems like on top of that, which we can't escape or undo, that's just part of how right. we're wired as humans. But on yep. top of that, Then we start dressing that up with a bunch of rules about how they're supposed to show up for us. And we basically surrender our own independence, our own humanity, as you put it, in the name of dependency, because it is a good thing to a certain degree, but it also needs to be balanced with that individuality and not as, as I think Harriet Lerner says, deselfing and and becoming a script or a role or a part, a player in this drama. So really reclaiming your own individual sexuality and again, using the crisis of betrayal, which I think is something you would never wish on anyone, but here we are, right? If you're listening to this and you're dealing with this, you do have an opportunity in front of you and it really does come by almost sort of deconstructing or at least challenging or or understanding the organization that's been set up. And a lot of the times, completely subconsciously through (laughs) conversations with your grandma or that's right. family culture or religion or these other things That's that right. just teach us how we're supposed to behave in intimate bonds
1: exactly and you know a lot of times working with couples i will say you know you deserve some compassion for yourselves because i yeah. don't know how you could have done it differently than exactly the way you did
0: it i love that
1: you know you just walked right into the system that you had learned from your own family yeah and the crisis is valuable i mean we use that language in church culture and you know, that kind of those are trials that yeah. but I think sometimes we don't really believe it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Where I think the crises of of these moments are a shaking up of the system. They're an exposure of the system that's been operating and an opportunity to evolve and be better.
0: Oh, it's a rebirth. And I yeah. I think it's nobody welcomes it, but but I think what you're saying, and I, I agree with you is that that we shouldn't be so afraid of it and run from it. Yeah. And go back to the status quo and try and reclaim something that probably should have never been built that way in the first place.
1: That's a a shaky foundation. And we're we're really tempted to go and try and believe in that foundation again when we need to move forward.
0: So, how would you say, just in terms of zooming out for a second, you know, looking at sexual betrayal, individual sexuality, because obviously people with compulsive sexual behaviors or who have crossed, you know, who have lost their sexual integrity and crossed lines and broken commitments, covenants. And then, obviously, the the betrayed partner who, you know, passively sort of just gets all this dumped on her in most cases that I work with, him as well in some Mm -hmm. cases. How does betrayal and going through the act, you know, secrecy, deception on the part of of the betrayer and obviously the trauma of being betrayed, how does that impact individual sexuality? What's been your experience with that on both sides of that?
1: I think what often happens, although I don't think it's what needs to happen, there becomes a much deeper ambivalence about sexuality itself. It's almost easier to blame sexuality than to look at the individuals and how they've been in relationship to their sexuality or what the relationship to one's sexuality is expressing about the individuals in that fractured partnership. And so sexuality is an easy scapegoat, and sometimes we hear this in the language of sex addiction programs and so on. I don't personally deny that there's a problem, but I often think the focus of some of these programs is sexuality as the corrosive force, as opposed to people's development and how they're in relationship to one another, how they're in relationship to their own integrity, and how they're in relationship to sexuality. because. The goal is not to shed oneself of one's inherent sexuality, but to create an honest, peaceful relationship with your sexuality and with those you have a responsibility to. So I think it's easy to just shut it down. And sometimes what happens is people will either go to their to their respective programs. And I I may be being unfair, so I know that this is not every program, but an easy place to find reinforcement is in your respective brokenness. And so it's a way of kind of finding a brotherhood among other people who've been compulsive around sexuality, but you're keeping your arm's length from sexuality as a way of managing the compulsivity, or you're going to your betrayal group, but in some ways reinforcing the powerlessness of who you are and the ways that sexuality has been destructive. And clearly there is some value in that, collective understanding, and clearly there's value in understanding what went wrong. But I think a, a, a risk can be that people don't use it as an opportunity to grow into a stronger, more capable person, be able to create goodness through their sexuality, or to create a better kind of relationship, or for the woman who maybe has been betrayed to get clearer about her own radar how maybe she's been complicit in being, I'm not speaking for every woman in this in this example, of course, but mm-hmm. some women who recognize that they've been somewhat complicit in their blindness to who their spouse is and the limitations he may have. Also, maybe not taking deeper responsibility for themselves and their happiness in life or their relationship to their sexuality, being too dependent or passive in that sexual relationship. So that while they don't like the power that the husband has had, for example, there's also been a way in which they've taken a kind of safety in it that has worked against them. So, you know, while people can just solidify into a broken position in a way, there's many people who use these opportunities to say, wait a minute, I've got to face how I've been functioning in too weak of a way. And I want to be stronger and clearer headed and wiser. And you know, my goal in helping a couple who's been through this is not necessarily to keep them together as a couple or not necessarily to get them having sex again. My goal is to help them both grow into people more capable of trustworthiness, more capable of discerning trustworthiness, people more capable of being at peace with their sexuality and creating goodness in their lives and in their couplehood. Because then you're really choosing something that's good for you.
0: Yeah, I love that.
1: Something much better.
0: Yeah, that's so beautiful. I love I love the way you articulate that. And I yeah, I agree. I think there's lots of places we can hide from ourselves. Yeah. Whether that's in the marriage pre betrayal, right? Yes. And then obviously in the secrecy of betrayal and then in the trauma, which again, I make so much room for people that are going through an authentic, traumatic experience and are disorganized. Sure. Nothing intentional going on there. But then there becomes a decision point, like you're saying, there becomes a choice. Am I going to stay in this passive position of rejecting my own sexuality or the person who betrayed? Am I going to just, as part of my trust building efforts or as part of my, you know, mea culpa for the rest of my life, you know, reject anything sexual in myself and around me and completely both live in this place where they, they can't find their way back to their own sexuality and certainly not back to each other.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and back to their own peace of mind and right. creating their own kind of internal anchor. It's often not how we think about good couplehood. Is that people that are the most happily married have a rich internal anchor? Their anchor is not in the other person, and they may deeply trust the other person, but in part because they trust themselves to discern, in part because they don't need the other person to be okay in life. I mean. We, a lot of our framing around romance and sexuality is "I need you, baby." You know, I need this other person to make my life whole. But that's a much more vulnerable position when we're leaning on someone else to make us feel legitimate, and it sets us up for this kind of blindness and
0: betrayal—either
1: mm-hmm. to betray or be betrayed.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important to be discerning not only about that in yourself, but also in in the places where you seek support to make sure that they're not reinforcing that that's brokenness right. and that, that hiding and that fear. Yeah. So that, to your point, I think that's, that's very wise to just to be aware of that, that these communities can be so such a lifeline. They can also keep people stuck in a place developmentally that isn't going to serve them long-term and, right. and it has to be good, a, yeah. Good
1: help is always helping you become need the helping source less. Isn't that so, the truth?
0: I know yeah. <laughs> working <laughs> ourselves out of a job. That. Yep. I'm
1: getting stronger and more able, and I'm growing out of my need for this h- source of help, and that's important.
0: Yeah, well, well stated. What's the role? I mean, you know, I I've done a lot of training in in attachment theory, and also you know do a lot of work with that. But especially with some of the stuff you're saying around this, I I'm curious what your take is on just some of the natural attachment longings that we just have. I mean, is that something that you you believe that? We should outgrow. Do you believe that it's something that we just learn how to manage better as adults? Like what's your take on that as far as those natural instincts to need another person and to feel secure with somebody else?
1: Yeah, I don't think they ever go away. In ideal development, they evolve into stronger kinds of attachment and the best kind of attachment allows for this, the strength and individual individuality of all members of that group. Mm-hmm more dysfunctional attachments pressure some in the group to be silenced, some to be inflated, so that the needs of the ego are, and, and the needs of, for safety are getting played out in dysfunctional ways within that grouping, whether it's a couple, a family, a community. And so, you know, Zion or an ideal collection is or the body of Christ is that the individuality and strength of all can be brought to bear for the well-being of the whole. Right. But it takes courage to do that because, you know, what I sometimes say is real strength doesn't require weakness in others. But a lot of people want to feel strong by pushing down on the people around them. And this happens in marriage a lot and often instinctively and unwittingly. You know, I want to marry somebody who's dependent on me, who needs me, because then I'll have the upper hand and I won't feel vulnerable. And she or he will have to love me because they need me so much. And it's just a kind of, nobody really admits that to themselves. So.
0: <laughs> That'd be strange if they did, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> but we can instinctively do that. Or the person who's like, I feel insecure in the world. I'm gonna marry this person who seems so confident. So those are very typical ways to attach, but they can if they're too rigid and you don't grow out of the dependency of being in either of those positions, it impairs your ongoing development.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. And I, I love the distinction because I, I agree. I think it was Sue Johnson that says, you know, individuation and attachment, differentiation and attachment are two sides of the same coin. And in my experience, having like having those natural longings of I I want to be close to this person. I need comfort, seeking comfort, seeking relief and, and solace and in, in the care of another person to me is sort of like the engine that drives us close to then reveal our individuality
1: that's exactly right
0: right drives us to reveal our, our heart our emotions our needs their desires and all that stuff instead of just let me come to you and you just take care of me and i don't have to ask for anything that's right right
1: exactly i absolutely i think relationship exposes self and self exposes relationship like those are always Yes. You know, one thing we talk about in the online courses I do is that we, we want two things and they feel in our earlier levels of development, like they compete with each other. And that is we want to belong to someone else. We want to belong to a right. family, a partner, a group, but we also want to b- belong to our own individuality. Yeah. And when we're young, we feel like you get one or the other. But as you <laughs> evolve, you realize you must make peace with both to really be happy and that's what marriage helps us do.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I love this. I love this discussion. I think it's it gets so polarized, and I, I think it's unhelpful, right, to yes. to really favor one over the other, and I, the integration of it is is so rich. It's been that way in my own marriage of almost 25 years, and as we've grown as individuals and, and really battled back and forth about these things, that tension is... It's such a beautiful little engine that just keeps us <laughs> yeah. evolving and growing as as a couple, as individuals. And I think it's a great program, quite honestly.
1: <laughs> it, is. it is. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. So in terms of steps, in terms of like thinking about how to move forward, if somebody's listening to this discussion and thinking, okay, I've been betrayed and I really have lost any interest in sex, sexuality, anything sexual in myself my partner feels threatening to me. Where does, and we'll just speak from the, the framework of a, of a woman who's been betrayed, just, just for simplicity's sake. Mm-hmm. And if you're a man listening to this and you've been betrayed, forgive me, but you know just, just flip the rules. Mm-hmm. But where would you have her start? Where would you have her start in terms of starting to make peace and reintegrate and reclaim her own sexual self, her own sexuality um, in her healing journey?
1: Well, uh, so maybe what I would say is if I were working with someone in that position, what I first want to do is just, first of all, normalize that it makes good sense to reject intimacy with somebody that has been harmful.
0: I mean, so exactly
1: good sense. It's completely in line with reason. And so, but let's say that they're feeling like, okay, maybe he's reestablishing his credibility. Maybe he's I'm safer, but I still am really at arm's length with sex. And sometimes I do it because I just don't want to look at porn or go, you know, out and and find someone else. So what I would want to do is kind of help them think through why am I rejecting it? Because there's a sanity in it, okay. And the more you can get it explicit, the more you can start to look at what is this exposing about what I believe about myself, what I perceive about this marriage. So. Is it that I have never liked sex and I've never had any relationship to it? There's so many different scenarios here. I'm trying to think about how to be helpful, but, you know, is this about I've never had it and now I especially want nothing to do with it. I've always been afraid of sexuality. Now it feels even scarier to me, but I think my husband's become more trustworthy. That's sort of a different course of kind of growth Mm -hmm. than I actually do like sex but I don't trust my husband. I'm having a hard time discerning if he's trustworthy. He does untrustworthy things still sometimes, or I, maybe I'm just paranoid, but I can't map my spouse well enough to know if this is really a safe place to reopen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Even though I don't dislike sex, and I but I just don't want to be sexual with him. Th- that's a different course of action. It's looking at what's happening in the marriage and why is she feeling untrusting? There's been many iterations of this, of course, there are people that, you know, maybe have a a comfortable enough relationship with their sexuality, but they've never brought themselves fully to the marriage, to the sexuality of the marriage. It's always been more in response to him. And maybe he's even become more trustworthy for real. Mm -hmm. But they're afraid to kind of step into the exposure and the kind of greater intimacy of really engaging a mutual relationship. And so while a betrayal like this requires growth, of course, on the part of the betrayer, often what is not visible until the betrayer has kind of dealt with themselves is how much it it requires growth on the part of the betrayed to create something qualitatively different. And once the spouse has become more trustworthy, that's when the rubber hits the road and you kind of have to look at like, do I... It's easier to be like, well, I don't trust you and I don't trust you yet. It's an easier place to go than wow, I'm really I've liked hiding. I've liked being just in a more dependent or responsive position than to actually step up and create something more mutual and stronger. So my long answer here is looking at why am I rejecting it? What's it telling me about me? What's it telling me about my spouse? What's it telling me about what needs to be addressed here uh, rather than i don't know i just don't have a desire i mean that's a that's a way to hide kind of yeah, rather exactly. than, okay i don't fair but why not and what's it about because then you know sort of what to work on and the, the lack of desire is often the canary in the coal mine so it's significant and it doesn't mean the woman's broken right i mean a lot of times people think oh the low desire person is the impaired one the high desire is the functional one that's just absolutely not true <laughs> Right? It's often good judgment that the low desire one does not want sex, but you want to use that information to discern why not and what can we learn from it.
0: Yeah, I love that. And, I, and it wasn't too long of an answer because it's a complex question. Like you said, people yeah. can be starting from different places. In our case, using a woman as an example, if she's coming from a place where she's got sexual trauma or there were sexual scripts in her family growing up, or there's just all these rules around it, and she's never looked at those, and then there's yeah. a sexual betrayal you know, the starting point is not going to be the relationship. Right. It's just, it just is not going to be there. And if there's pressure to have sex, you know, if there's pressure to get that back online, that's where she has to look at it and say, you know, am I willing to keep doing this in this way where I basically have to, you know, ignore all these other, all this information that just came up for me that I haven't looked at. I think, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. And if it has never belonged to you, I mean, this can... impair your ability to be capable of intimacy if sexuality has never been yours. Right. It's a piece that really matters to be capable of loving through your sexuality.
0: And I have have so many, again, I I work mostly with betrayed women and men who who are unfaithful, but I often ask the men that I work with, I'll say, do you really want to be making love to somebody who's really not in the room, who's completely de-selfed, who's completely checked out, you know, and I put it that way, virtually every guy is just like, uh, no, that sounds horrible. Am I doing that? <laughs> you know? Right. Well, yeah, you got to look at how you might be reinforcing that and pressuring That's her right. to not look at herself That's or get right. feeling threatened by that when she wants to like speak up and reclaim her own sexuality. So there yeah. is a team effort here in terms of creating conditions and space That's where right. they can each grow and there's permission to do that.
1: Absolutely. And one of the really challenging things is that, you know, I've never spoken to somebody who who's in, if they're the higher desired person, Uh that doesn't long to be desired. Right. That's what, that's usually what's driving the whole struggle is I, it's not so much about frequency. Is it about, do you want me?
0: Responsiveness.
1: Right. Exactly. Do you like the idea of being close to me? And so... I never had a high desire person say that they didn't want to be chosen and wanted. Exactly. But people's behavior is often, they've got another agenda that they don't fully track, which is they want control more than they want to be chosen. Because it's so scary to not be wanted back, to not be chosen, to feel that this person doesn't desire me. And what does that mean about me? And what does that mean about what we can be as a couple? And so a lot of times people will... Pressure to sort of get the reinforcement of the lower desire person having sex, but they never feel wanted because they went and took the control in it. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, yeah. rather than really let that person have a choice, which makes the higher desire person uncomfortable, but in reality, it also make, can make the lower desire person uncomfortable because now they're more in a position that they have to show their cards and choose one way or the other. And it's easier to say, well, I did it because you're always pressuring (laughs) rather than I want you or I choose you or here I am.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So reclaiming sexuality, you know, obviously there's an individual journey part of it that I think it has to begin, even if I guess I believe, and correct me if you think something different on this, but I, I, what I'm hearing and what I've believed as well is that in order to really reclaim the couple's sexuality, each person has to take, like you said, track and inventory and look at and understand their own relationship to their own bodies, to their own sexuality, their own yes. desires, their, you know, where they're hiding, where they're not hiding. Um, yes. there's just a lot of things to examine and look at. And to me, it's like, how rewarding to have two people fully embodied, fully present, showing up for this really fun activity. That, you know, can be so rewarding for both people instead of having, you know, both people play out roles or one person subverting themselves to another person or a role. Those just sound so dark and depressing to me. And
1: lonely, ultimately. Yeah. Ultimately, lonely and feeling like there isn't, I think people feel like love isn't really real in that frame because there's a kind of utility in it. Maybe there's a kind of safety or a role based marriage in it, but they don't ever feel the freedom of really loving and being loved through their sexuality. And, you know, I think that's what higher development allows and really facilitates as you start to have this experience of being loved and loving through your whole body. You know, and it's a, it's a sacred marital ritual, really. It mm-hmm. is. It's, marital unions are sacred because they they produce growth in people. They can be painful, they can be Strained. I'm not trying to put any Pollyannish understanding of marriage. I understand marriage can be hard at times, and because it is a driver of our development. And when we don't develop, we really suffer within marriage. But it deserves kind of our acknowledgement of how sacred marital union really is in terms of creating stability in society, driving the development of individuals. And sex is that kind of ritual that holds it together. And it's also a way to learn more about ourselves, to become more at peace with ourselves, to become more capable of loving through our embodiment. And so we sometimes in our culture, we can kind of put it in these fear-based frames and rigid frames because we're terrified of it. And I understand it. But I think the more we grow, the more we understand how foundational it is to being whole, to loving, and to really being at peace within ourselves.
0: Oh yeah. That's so beautifully said. And I, I agree. Like it's the feedback on it is so immediate and so honest yes. that it can almost take your breath away that yes. you can't hide from it. You truly are, you know, literally and figuratively naked yes. <laughs> in that experience. Yes. And it really does reveal things that, you know, I know for myself that you don't want to look at sometimes. Yes. And it's really, exactly. it's really overwhelming but it's also an invitation, and I and I think because it's such a such an accurate and honest barometer that you know that it that we have to pay attention to it, you know, or, or otherwise I think, like you said, we we stop developing, we suffer, we hide, and yes. we're we're lonely, which is just tragic. But sorry, did you want to say something about that real quick? No, okay. So, in sexual betrayal, when there's been a breach of trust and and security like that. When you're working with a couple, when you're looking at a couple's you know, kind of development through this restoring trust and security and where, the, where sexuality fits into that, taking pressure off of the couple of using sex as a way to repair the relationship, at least initially, is probably wise, correct? I mean, that's I tell yeah. people, look, I'm, I'm going to be the last person in the room to tell you when to have sex, but I'll tell you, yeah. right? But I think you need to slow down and look at what purpose it's serving, right?
1: Yes. I mean, exactly everything you just said. I would not say don't have sex because sometimes the only thing I might challenge in the idea is that I think too often we think the relationship must be fully solid. Then you can have sex a little bit rather than sex is sometimes a way of working out the relationship. So,
0: but totally.
1: So I just don't, I just want to make sure I'm not sounding like I'm giving that sort of unidirectional picture. Yeah. But clearly I think, When there's betrayal, often people have very ambivalent feelings, though. They're kind of like, never touch me again. And I very much want to have sex with you because they're ambivalent about I want you close and I want you far. And so those confused feelings also have a lot of sense to them, too, that you want those things. I want you and I I love you and I hate you. And Mm -hmm. that's true and difficult. So but yes, I think what I would definitely be trying to discourage is if you're having sex as a way of trying to keep him faithful, or you're trying to kind of work out some kind of safety in this old bad way. I think if it's sort of repeating patterns that have been destructive, then I would definitely be pushing myself to not do them. Yeah. (laughs) Or, Or talking to a client about not doing them because there might be a comfort in them, but it reinforces a narrative that keeps you stuck, a meaning frame that keeps you stuck.
0: Well, and if you're ignoring your own signals in that experience, then right. your own development is going to be paused.
1: That's right. And you don't trust yourself anymore. That When you're betrayed, the first place you have to reestablish trust is with yourself, mm-hmm. with your own ability to monitor what monitor what's real, to not make decisions that are self-betraying, right? In the name of security or... And that's sounds easier than it is i mean it can be really tempting to want to just trust someone again that you have lots of signals telling you they're not trustworthy because you want so much for it to be what you want it to be and if you don't act in ways that are trustworthy with yourself you're going to have a very hard time trusting someone else
0: yeah and so so that individual you know reclaiming and healing your own sexuality starts with paying attention to i love the way you put it in terms of trusting yourself and not betraying yourself in terms of going into places that aren't safe or staying in something too long or um, there's so many ways that can show up. And for the person who has been unfaithful, the person who's betrayed, you know, reclaiming their sexuality in terms of where that starts, not pressing to just use sex as a measure of, you know, their own acceptance or their own in the relationship. I mean, that's, that's another, that's just as much of a dangerous thing as a, betrayed partner using it as a marker for safety
1: yes exactly right yeah
0: yeah and so just as we wrap up here i mean there's there's so much here obviously we could talk for hours about this it's just so endlessly interesting to me and i hope our listeners just talking through this stuff because it really does hit close to home it's it's our own growth it's our own development and it you know and it weaves in and out of the bedroom but it it's very much our lives in terms of coming together in close uh, proximity to someone we care about especially if they've hurt us, and then how do we navigate that? There's just so much here that is just rich and beautiful. But I'd love to hear from you, just as we wrap up, what growth have you seen as people really lean into this work, as they have the courage to ask questions about what they're doing, why they're doing it, looking at this other person across from them, owning and understanding their own rules and, and such around their own sexuality, their own emotions. And as I start to put all this together, what growth have you seen?
1: Well, it's just, that's the best part of this work is watching people grow into deeper peace within themselves and in their relationships. And even watching that their kids settle down, even if the kids weren't really aware of what was happening in the marriage, that the kids actually seem happier, more at peace because it permeates, the growing peace permeates throughout the Mm. family. But, you know, what I think is a thousand percent true about life and development is and why faith as a concept is a virtue is that it requires the ability to do hard things up front, to face what's true, to face the disequilibrium and the disorganization in looking at what's true and tolerating all the anxiety and discomfort of that reorganization where if you can just like go blind, pretend it's not there, you can kind of stave that off. But meanwhile, you have all this dysfunction that's happening in your life and ultimately will make you miserable. People that grow are willing to take that right up front, deal with the discomfort in it, deal with the exposure in it, and then enjoy the benefit. You know, I've been working with a couple where they've gone to lots of therapies for a long time with limited growth and they came to me and in my work with them, I've had them doing this ritual at night that they, you know, they've done some work to kind of be up to a position to be able and willing to do what I'm going to say next, but where they would every night talk about the ways that they've been petty, destructive, hurtful to the other person during the day. And this is a couple that has always preferred to blame the other than to look at themselves. And the beautiful thing is that they have both buckled down and said, all right, enough's enough.
0: We've been miserable (laughs) long enough. Good for them. (laughs) And I'm just going to
1: talk to you about the petty, stupid thing I did today that was deniable that I knew would create discomfort in you. And I did it for the pleasure of it. I mean, nobody wants to admit that those things happen within marriage, but they do. And so the more that they've been doing this night after night for many, several weeks now, what's been happening is their sense of peace and friendship They've been self-correcting midday. So like, oh, I don't want to have to admit to that tonight. (laughs) And so they're being kinder. They're becoming more trustworthy people, you know, and now the idea of actually touching each other starts to sound like a possibility, right? Because there's not all this. So my point is, it takes a little bit of pain and discomfort to create much better, but you have to choose it. And it takes some courage to choose it. But when you do, you create a much richer, more beautiful home, couple together, you know. And so my favorite scripture is the truth sets you free. Oh, yeah. And I say sometimes the part they edited out was it makes you miserable first and then it sets you free. (laughs) (laughs) But it does set you free. And it does give you freedom, even though it and it reorganizes you and it grows you up. But it's uh, does take courage.
0: Yeah, and marriage especially is the laboratory for that. Yeah, I mean, you just, you can't really have designed a better system. That's right for individual growth, and right. and then the, of course the benefits of it is that you have this couple entity as well that is just more than the sum of its parts, and it's just it, exactly. and it does so much good, like you said, across generations with children and and yes. ancestors, neighbors. I mean, everybody. Just it's just a beautiful thing. Yeah, I, I love. Yeah, I I love the way you put it, and and just your. Just your trust and your confidence in paying that cost up front, right? That it's worth doing that and that we don't need to be afraid of that.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Because boy, when it starts or when you start to lean into it, and I certainly relate to this, you keep thinking, I think I've made a horrible decision. (laughs) Or I just needed
1: to this stupid thing I do or, you know, yeah, now I've kind of showed my cards and...
0: Right. Or the ancient right question of is there another way right is there some other way or father let this cut pass before me like we we all in our own humanity have this natural hesitation to do that work but on the other side of it like you said it's hard to measure like the good it it does and how it feels and so i i I love what you're saying
1: yeah fantastic
0: so how can people find you
1: Uh, so my website is just my name which is finlaysonfife.com and then I have their free podcasts and online courses that I do for couples and individuals around sexuality and, and intimacy and their emotional and sexual relationships. And then I also, you can find it all there. I have an Instagram, I handle, I also have a Facebook group where I do live instruction every month for free for people that are in the group. So,
0: Oh, fantastic. Lots of ways to get your materials and your support. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah, thank you so much for the fantastic work you're doing. You've had a huge impact on so many people that I've worked with. And I've certainly benefited tremendously from your wisdom and your experience and just your courage. So thank you so much for all you're doing and also just taking some of your time today to be with us.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: You can learn more about Dr. Jennifer finlayson Fife at her website, finlaysonfife.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, so it's easy to find. She's got a lot of great relationship courses and coaching and a blog and podcast episodes and even a free Facebook group where she answers questions. So go check her out. Thank you again, Dr. Finlayson Fife for joining me on the podcast. You're a fantastic resource and it was really great having you here. Also, if you love what you're hearing on the podcast and you wanna keep learning, come follow me on social media. I've put links in the show notes on Instagram and Facebook And also on my website, I have lots of great resources there, online courses and my weekly relationship column and past episodes of this podcast. There's all kinds of great stuff over there at jeffstewar.com. Love to connect with you. Love to keep supporting you any way I can. And I look forward to joining you in the next episode of this podcast.